Good morning. Happy New Year. Would you turn your Bibles with me, please, this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 5? Let me just make a couple of announcements here before we start in your bulletin. just want to remind you as well that uh, there, there's a, an outline in your bulletin, and on the back of that outline are questions. Um, each week I, I, I intend to put questions in the bulletin that will help you in growth group to walk through the truths that we've been discussing together in the sermon. And so those are some application questions that press those truths a little bit farther, and uh, those have been uh, a blessing in our growth group discussions. Also, I um, want you to know that there is continuing prayer meeting on Wednesdays until, well, there is continuing prayer meeting, but then January 12th will begin family discipleship again. And also, then in the announcements section of, of the, uh, the bulletin, tracks are available for you in the foyer. They're still there. Please take them. They're great little gospel tracks that will help you to share the gospel with your friends and neighbors. Um, and then we also want to invite you, if you are ready to confess your faith by baptism, please let me know that. I just want to kind of get some things out there for you to think about and pray over. Um, And also, we're going to be having a membership class very soon. So if you're interested in that as well, please let me know. And uh, just uh, be aware of those things for, for our growth in Christ together. Thank you. But well, would you please stand with me one more time, and we're going to uh, read our text together this morning, 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2 is our text for this morning. Let's read this together in unison. Verse 1, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers younger women as sisters in all purity. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're grateful for this opportunity to to get back into the letter of 1 Timothy that we've been looking at for several months. We're thankful for these words to help shape the life of our church. And Father, we, we confess to You that we fall short and we know that without You, we can do nothing. We are dependent for all of these things upon the risen, ascended, reigning, interceding Christ who is actively working in His church, among His people, by His Spirit. So this morning, as we speak of these things that You have for us to understand and learn, I pray that we would indeed understand them and that we would take them to heart and that they wouldn't just be information for our minds, but that we would be doers of the Word, that we would exercise these things as Your sovereign hand leads us into opportunities to exercise them. We ask that You would fill us with Your Spirit, not only now to understand and and to gain the value of these truths, but then even in the moments to to come in, in, in days ahead where we are called upon to exercise these truths, Father, Spirit of God, we ask that You would strengthen us and empower us and fill us with Your your fruit that we would love one another in the way that You've called us to. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. 
Last time we studied 1 Timothy together was October 24th. So I think it's time we get back in. I'm thankful for uh, the opportunity we've had over the last couple of months to look at the truths of the, the armor of God and also certainly the humanity of Christ. I'm glad we did that. That was helpful to me. That was I needed to, to study that. I hope you were blessed by those truths as well. I'd like to begin this morning as we kind of look back at 1 Timothy. Uh, I want to begin with just a really short, very quick review of, of the things that we've learned so far. First of all, remember with me that the Apostle Paul sent his emissary, Timothy, to Ephesus, to this particular church, because the Apostle Paul had planted this church. You can read about that in Acts chapter 20. And, but, but this church had kind of gone off the rails, biblically. There was many things that Paul had to address in this church. Corrupt leadership, uh, corrupt practices among the people, false doctrine, immorality. There was many things that had taken place in the life of this church that the Apostle Paul needed to correct. And so he sent Timothy to begin that process. And the purpose, the purpose for which 1 Timothy is written is found in what verses? You remember? What are the key verses of 1 Timothy? You can look at it real quick with me. Back in chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16 is the key that unlocks the interpretation of this book. It tells us, I love it when the apostles do that when they write. They tell us exactly why they're writing the letter that they do. And so these three verses help us to interpret the entire book. And so Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know. I'm writing these things so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. That is the center of this book. That's what it's all about. Everything Paul writes here is to explain how people ought to behave in the household of God. And then he motivates them with these following titles. He says, you you need to behave the way Christ calls you to because you're the household of God. You're God's family. God is your Father. And so you have a name over your life. And that matters for the sake of the Gospel and the Kingdom of God. And you're, you're not only the household of God, you're the church of the living God. You're in a city that that triumphs and rejoices in the goddess Diana. But that's not a living God. She doesn't have ears. She can't, see, she can't hear. She can't see. She can't speak. She can't do anything for you. But you are the church of the living God who hears and sees and empowers His people to accomplish His will. And because of that, your role in the world is to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. You are to hold fast the truth of the Gospel once for all delivered to the saints. The church is the foundation of the Gospel in the sense that it keeps it, it holds it secure and safe, and and protects it and defends it from being perverted. And not only are you that, that function, but you are the pillar of the truth. You hold it high into the world. You proclaim the Gospel. Into the, into the world. And so in chapter 1 then, because that's the purpose of this book and that's who we are, Paul directs Timothy to correct the church's behavior regarding its teaching. He tells Timothy to correct false teaching and to proclaim sound teaching, even if that requires church discipline. You see that at the end of chapter 1. There's nothing more important than proclaiming the Gospel of, of the Word of God accurately. In chapter 2, Paul directs Timothy to to address the behavior of men and women. 
He calls the men to unified prayer and the women to learn the Scriptures in modesty and submission so that they may be skillful and effective in raising the next generation of the church of the living God. And then chapter 3, and we've been through these together. Chapter 3, Paul directs Timothy to address the behavior of those who officially lead and serve the church, namely elders and deacons. And so in, those, in that chapter, he gives the qualifications of elders and deacons. And then in chapter 4, Paul addresses Timothy's behavior directly so that as a servant of Jesus Christ and a minister to the people, he can be a good example for the whole assembly that they know how to be good servants of Christ Jesus. Now we come to chapter 5. We've got two chapters left together, 5 and 6. We come to chapter 5, and in this chapter, Paul explains to Timothy how he is to behave toward three groups of people in the church. And by extension, and by his example, how the entire congregation is to behave toward these three groups of people in the church. And so the three groups of people that you see in chapter 5 that that Paul is exhorting Timothy to behave rightly toward is, number one, sinning members. That's verses 1 and 2. What happens when you see a brother, a sister, a mother, a father in Christ who is walking in sin. What do you do about that? Do we do nothing? Well, Paul's going to tell us. The second category of people that Paul wants to make sure this church is, is caring for properly is, is widows. What do you do in the care for widows? And that's verses 3-16. through 16. And then the final category of people is in verses 17 through 25 of chapter 5, is elders. Elders who work hard at the ministry. Elders who are found in sin. What do you do with them? And then the process of ordaining elders. So 1 Timothy 5 is the Apostle Paul's Spirit-inspired instruction about how the church as a whole is to behave towards sinning members, widows, and elders. And this morning, we're just going to look at those first two verses, one and two, and study Paul's instruction about responding rightly to sinning members. And so the title of the message today, as you can see at the top of your outline, responding rightly to sinning members of God's household. And I want to make the connection for you as we, as we introduce this section. Keep the connection in mind between the fact that we are the household of God and we have to care for one another when we sin. That's important. Since we are the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and the buttress of the truth, it is imperative that we as a church strive for godliness. Right? That's what chapter 4 was, was largely about. Paul told Timothy, strive for godliness. Remember chapter 4, 7-10? through 10? Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, Timothy. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we've set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And one of the means that Christ has has ordained or assigned to His church to pursue godliness is, is personal confrontation. 
when a sinning brother or sister in Christ is, is refusing to repent. To speak the truth in love. When, when you, as a member of Christ's household, observe another member of the spiritual family sinning, either doctrinally or practically, you can't handle that situation however you want to. We have good, really good, clear instructions on how to do that. And that's what we're going to look at. And may the Spirit of God enable us to walk in these things. You know, and, and think about it this way, how each of us responds to sitting members in the body of Christ is, is really central to that godly progress in our local church and ultimately then very impactful on how we do in, in the community as the pillar and buttress of the truth. It's vital. So the main idea that I want you to, to look at this morning, and you can see this in your outline as well, we must confront sin in one another's lives. And when we do, let's do it as members of the household of God. So here's, here's the central question. How do we do that then? What does that look like? Number one, or outline, let's look at what it, it is to respond wrongly. And I'm going to interject a few additional incorrect responses and then land on the one specific one that the text talks about. But before we get to the one the text talks about, let me just suggest three others very quickly. What do you do? Think about the times where you've seen a brother or sister in Christ who you, you know is walking in sin. How do you respond to that? How have you responded to that? One, I think, incorrect response that, that may be very common to, to God's people is what I'll call ignore and affirm. It's a comfortable response. We don't want to disrupt the relationship. Right? That's kind of what we come into when we think, well, I'm, I'm going I'm to say something, but uh, man, I don't want to. We feel anxious about confronting the situation. Have you been there with me? We don't want things to be awkward or uncomfortable. And so we don't want to shoulder the effort to restore. That's, a, that's another part of that. I don't want to. Well, I tell them I sin, but then I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to help out. So we might feel anxious and uncomfortable. We might think, well, I don't want to really give the effort into that. And so we choose to then ignore it and affirm it, not in the sense of I'm glad you're sinning, but just by pretending that there's nothing wrong and just going on with a happy life. And, and wonderful interaction as if nothing is wrong at all. That's, that's one way that we could wrongly respond. Second, I'd call bottle and build. We feel angry about the sin side. Sinfully angry, but not righteously angry because righteous anger is filled with love and zeal for God's glory and the good of others. But yes, we still feel angry about the sin. And we feel hurt, maybe, and, and vulnerable, and a broken trust has happened. So we're very anxious about confronting the sinning member because in so doing, we open ourselves back up to further hurt 
to further vulnerability and further broken trust. And so again, we, we, we bottle all that up and we end up building walls around ourselves and we sort of shut off from those people that have been sinning or even have offended us. That's another option that people choose to take. And again, that's not helpful to the body of Christ at all, to anyone. It's easy to bottle those things up and build walls around yourself. A third option could be to tell others. There's another thing that comes about very often. We feel like we need help with the situation, so instead of seeking biblical counsel while keeping the situation anonymous, which is a a wonderful option, you can go to a a more mature brother or sister in Christ and say, I'm not going to tell you what the situation is, but let me sort of lay this out for you and honest me. What should I do? Right? Instead of doing that, we just kind of begin to tell others and see how they say the situation should be handled. And then more and more people end up knowing about this. Well, that's the wrong response too, right? We feel like the situation gives us a sense of maybe superiority, whether we recognize it or not. And, and lends to us some sense of control over the sinning member. Maybe we want to get kind of a, a higher feeling over that person. We can, get a high, we can get a little bit higher by pushing that person lower. And so we tell others from whom we want some affirmation. That's the way that people do respond to sinning members wrongly. So you have these three. Ignore and affirm. Bottle, build tell others, well, the one the text deals with directly is rebuke sharply. The Bible says here, do not rebuke, but encourage. Very interesting. We're going to look at the words very specifically, but just see this as the center of these two verses. Do not rebuke, but encourage Do not rebuke, but encourage. And notice the structure here. Those are the commands in in these two verses. And those commands then apply to four categories of people. Older men. Younger men. Older women. And younger women. Don't rebuke, but encourage. Well, as you read that, you should have a bit of a hang-up because you remember maybe other texts in the Scripture where it actually says to rebuke, right? Well, that's where you have to look a little deeper and, and, and you look into the original language a little bit. And this word is a little bit different than the other word that you'll find in other verses that say to rebuke. So what does this mean? The word rebuke here, And some translations might have like sharply rebuke or some additional adverb to qualify this this action. And what it means literally is to strike on, to beat upon, to chastise with words, to chide, to abrade, literally to, to bludgeon someone with your words. Have you ever had that happen in a church situation? Words are powerful tools, aren't they? We know that from Scripture. They have powerful, they're powerful tools to build or they're powerful weapons to destroy. And we know that intuitively. But sadly, we all know what it feels like to make wounds on someone with our words. 
We all know what that feels like. James talks about that in James 3, 1-6. He said, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on, and set on fire by hell. Think about a time in your life, maybe real or hypothetical, when someone sinned against you personally in some way. Or a time when you observed someone sinning in a way that had a negative effect on someone or something that you value. And so you feel in your heart strong emotions well up. You know the feeling of anger, right? Beginning to, to boil inside of you. It, it's, it's common to man. You were angry. And the more you replayed the situation in your mind, it, it, you find yourself talking to that person when they're not there, right? The more you replay the situation in your mind, the more angry you became. And, and, and whatever flicker of righteous anger and zeal was there, to defend the glory of God's name, or even to rescue someone from being harmed further by that sin, or to plead with that sinner to repent for their own good, that kind of righteous anger was snuffed out in your heart by the blast of your own sinful, selfish anger. And that anger was ready only to repay, to get back at the one who caused you to feel assaulted. Can you imagine that or remember that with me? That feeling? Just, ah. And, and that sinful anger continued to boil until it found vent in your words toward the one who sinned. Maybe it was not just someone in, 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 in the local family of, of body of Christ, but maybe someone in your immediate family. And your words became whips. That, that's what I want you to think about right there. Your words became whips to hit the offender. To hurt them back for what they did. And every time you found a new whip and applied it through your words, you could see that person flinch emotionally. You know that feeling? Unfortunately, we do. And you knew that your whip had met its mark. And if the truth be told, those whip-like words were applied not so much to prevent that person from sinning in that way again, as much as to hurt them for the hurt they caused you. That's what Paul's talking about in this verse. Words can be whips to strike on, to beat on, to chastise, to bludgeon someone with your words. Now let me ask you, does that kind of response to sin honor the Savior? No. That's not just a regular kind of rebuke. This rebuke that Paul's talking about is word whips. Does that help the sinner? No, it doesn't. Does that heal the schism between you? 
No. Human beings, we think that we can change things for the better by angry emotions and words like whips. That's what we think. We think that kind of personal force will change things for the better, but it doesn't. And we're wrong to think that way. I mean, literally, when you think about it, self-reliant, arrogant, selfish sinners try to change other people in that way with force like that. And sometimes they may end up getting their way and thinking everything is fine, but remember the Word of God. What does He say in, in James 1? The wrath of God does not what? Does not work. I'm sorry. The wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. Does it? And the Apostle Paul holds out to the household of God a better way, a Christ-like way of responding to sinning members. And so the first thing we need to understand here is that Paul says, do not rebuke, but what? Encourage. So number two this morning, how do we respond rightly? And that's number two, responding rightly. What does that look like? Well, this word encourage is what we need to focus on here. Letter A, number two, is confront. And I just want you to know that in this text, it's not saying to do nothing about it. It's saying to do something. <laughs> Confront that person. right? And, and this is what it, we know from the rest of Scripture. Let me give you some just central text in the Scripture that affirm, in addition to this one, that we do need to confront sin. For example, the most well-known one is Matthew 18, 15-20. We've been through that text several times. And just the phrase, so very clear in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, do what? Go and tell him. Between you and him alone. Right? It's private. Go and tell him his fault. Not do nothing. Go and tell him his fault. Galatians 6, 1-5 is a second classic text. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, doctrinal, yes. Practical, yes. You who are spiritual, you who are not at the moment caught up in sin like he is, you should restore him. Go and do something about it. Restore him, but in a spirit of gentleness, it says. A third text, 2 Thessalonians 3, 13-15. The last verse I'll just read for now, and we'll look more at that later in, just a, in a few moments. But verse 15 says to this brother who's in sin, don't regard him as an enemy, but what? Warn him as a brother. Don't regard him as an enemy. Warn him as a brother. And then also, last one here, 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Here it is, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Shouldn't do nothing. We should seek to correct, but do it with gentleness. So those texts are so clear in addition to this one. Right? Go and tell. You should restore. You should warn. You should correct. But with gentleness and humility and love. And so we have already read that Paul exhorts Timothy in, in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. It says, put these things before the brothers Timothy, warning them about false teaching, 
He tells him in 4.11, command and teach these things, Timothy. And he tells him in 4.13, devote yourself to reading and exhortation and teaching. And Paul even told Titus in 2.15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. But none of those commands call Timothy or Titus to weave a whip with their words and sharply rebuke sinning members of his church family. And this command, we need to know, bears down first and foremost on elders, right? like Timothy, Titus. But then it's also for every member of the body when they see a fellow member who is persisting in sin. So if we're not, if we're not to sharply rebuke when we confront, what are we to do? Let her be. Confront appropriately. And this is where the word encourage really comes into play here. This word encourage, if you were to look this up in a dictionary, you're like, okay, what does that word mean? And it's got so many shades to its meaning. And it's based on the context. And that's what makes this word the perfect word for this scenario. Generally, it means to call someone to your side and speak to them. In fact, this word is is the verb form of the title that's given to the Holy Spirit. The parakletos, the comforter, the one who comes alongside of you to help. Do you see the picture? To pull someone to your side and speak to them. And the speaking might be, and here's where the shades of meaning of this word encourage come to, come to bear. It might mean to teach in a certain situation, to impart knowledge to the mind. In other situations, it might mean exhort. And if you just looked up this word in the New Testament, you'd see all of these words used depending on the context. Sometimes it's teach. Sometimes it's exhort, which means to motivate the heart by warning or stirring someone up in the heart, in the heart issue. Another, another meaning it could be entreat, which means to beg or to plead or to urge uh, to someone to avoid something dangerous or to enjoy something blessed. A fourth meaning you, you will find in the New Testament is to, conf- uh, to comfort or to console, meaning when someone is experiencing fear, or anxiety, or worry, or grief, or sadness, you, you console them, you comfort them. Uh, the fifth meaning is then to encourage, the way we typically think of encourage, meaning to strengthen them, to, to, to address someone who's weak or overwhelmed or discouraged, and to strengthen them, to encourage them. So this word can mean to teach, exhort, entreat, comfort, or console, encourage, strengthen. So if we were to define what Paul is calling Timothy to do here, then we'd say this, to, to draw that sinning member into a time of relationship, pull them to your side to speak with them, right? And let your spoken words, here it is, be fitting to meet the needs of that believer's heart so that they have the desire and the hope to change and overcome that sin for the glory of God. You can't say the same thing to everybody in any situation of sin. You have to give them what they need. That's the idea of that word encourage. You pull them to your side and and you've thought through this and prayed over it and you say, you know what? What's going on here? You've asked them questions and you understand why from their heart the sin has come out in their life. And you seek to address it according to the need. Maybe they need to be taught. Maybe maybe they need some information. Maybe they need exhortation and so on. That activity can be filled with righteous anger, 
Yes, which really is zeal to see God's name exalted in that person's life, which is compassion for the people that are affected by that person or for even the good of that person themselves. You're, you're going to work hard with zeal until, until the job's done. And I want to say that to, to you as well, this isn't coddling people. This is not psychology. This is not a massage for self-esteem. This is speaking the truth in love. We, we, we get stuck in our minds sometimes thinking that if we don't blast people, we're not really affecting change. No, that's not the way it works. This is how it works. This, this is what Scripture says. Speaking the truth in love, fittingly, to the heart of the issue, so that real change begins by the power of the Spirit. And that's what they need because Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19-20, For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adulteries and sexual immorality and theft and false and false witness and slander. It comes from where? The heart. The heart is what needs to be addressed. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus' point is that changing a few things on the outside won't make a difference. It's God's Word, the human heart, that affects change that then alters behavior. And so the kind of encouragement that Paul is commanding here does not simply tell the sinning member, stop that, (laughs) start this, and then apply a few word whips so that the sinning member is afraid to fail again. No, this kind of encouragement draws that sinning member into a time of relationship, gives spoken words that are fitting to meet the needs of that person's heart, so that they have the desire and hope to change and overcome that sin for the glory of God. Let me give you a few examples of this. Think of a young believing couple, very young, just came to Christ, who doesn't yet know the Word of God very well and may need some biblical teaching about living together and sleeping together before marriage. How are you going to address that? You're just going to whip them with, no, just show them the Word of God. You see? Or a father, a father who is neglecting his responsibilities to biblically shepherd and care for his family. He may need to be exhorted about what he already knows. The first category may need some teaching from God's Word. The second, some exhortation. A third category, an abandoned wife and mother who has given over to some addiction may need to be given the strong comforts of the promises of Christ's love. You see? It's a difference according to what sin and heart issue is going on. A husband who is considering leaving his family may need to be entreated for his own sake and the sake of his family. An elderly person who has lost a spouse and feels overwhelmed by the afflictions of latter years, who has begun to neglect the Word, and fellowship, and prayer, and ministry may need to be strengthened and encouraged. Right? So there's teaching. There's consolation. There's encouragement. It depends on the situation. And this is what Paul means when he says, do not rebuke, but encourage. Or when he said elsewhere, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak, but be patient with everybody. You see? Different situations call us different things. And that is all built into that word encourage. 
Draw that sinning member into a time of relationship and let your spoken words be fitting to meet the needs of that believer's heart so that they have the desire and hope to change and overcome that sin for the glory of God. Now, it is very important that our words are accompanied with the right attitudes. And Paul helps us to see the right attitudes in a very practical way. Because the right words with a fleshly attitude will often fall on deaf ears. But thankfully, through the ministry of the Spirit, we can be given both the right words and the right attitudes. So number three this morning, let's look at the attitudes, responding with the right attitudes. When you confront a fellow member of God's household who is sinning, basically what Paul is saying is have the attitudes that God says you should have towards your father, towards your mother, your brother, your sister. You see what it says? Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. As brothers, young men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. You know, as I read this text, it's, it's kind of interesting. We, when we talk to each other, when we send emails or texts, what do we call each other typically, no matter what our age is? Brothers and sisters, right? But it's, it, stuff like this makes me, I want to just, I want to text it, thank you, mother. Thank you, Father. It, it makes you, because they're older than you are and they've walked in the, in the Word longer than you have. And this is the way that the Bible tells us to talk to each other in the body of Christ. Or at least to have an attitude toward each other. And, and healthy families are like this, right? They, they, they care about each other's well-being physically and spiritually. So the members of those families confront one another when there's an issue that needs correction. Dads and moms correct kids when they need it, right? They better. And kids who love their parents and see their dads or moms sinning should confront them in a fitting way. That is so helpful. Brothers and sisters who love each other will confront each other in a fitting way when sin is present. And that's how a family operates when sin is observed. And so in this text, Paul tells us that we're in a spiritual family. And we can address one another like that too. So then what are the specific attitudes that Paul seems to have in mind here? Well, letter A, confront an older man as a father. And what would be the attitude there? I think what Paul is implying there is honor and respect. Ephesians 6, 2, right? Honor your father and mother, which is based on the clear command all throughout Scripture. It's given throughout the entirety of Scripture. God has established a very clear structure or economy of authority in creation, right? And those who are delegated authority like government, husbands, fathers, mothers, are to be shown honor and respect, not because of their moral perfection, but on the basis of the position that God has delegated to them. And to show someone honor and respect is to treat them with esteem, if only because of the position that, that has been delegated to them by God. So when we confront an older brother, an older man, older father in the Lord, we're to approach him with honor and respect. Well, well how is that done practically? What comes to your mind? How do you do that? Well, I'll just give a few suggestions. Um, be very careful to use words that communicate respect and esteem and honor instead of words that are condescending or cutting down. That's a simple one, right? Maybe not simple to do, but simple to think about. 
Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only as such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You see, building up, let me make this distinction too. Building someone up doesn't mean you're affirming what they do. It means you're speaking to them for their good. You're actually building them up toward likeness to Christ. Second, a second suggestion would be look that father in the eyes and express respect by your attention with your eyes and ears. A third suggestion, assume nothing, but gain a clear understanding before you seek to confront the issue. Proverbs 18.13 says, It is a shame when you try to speak into an issue without first understanding it. Proverbs 18.13 Use questions to reveal the issue and respectfully point out the sin. That is such a helpful tool and it's, and it's a very clear expression of submission and honor when you don't accuse right off but ask questions. For example, I like the way Daniel addressed Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4.27. He says, therefore, O king, I mean, he's being very respectful here. King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Is that interesting? Please, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Will you receive this? O king? But he says next, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Wow. Isn't that a great combination of things from Daniel? Second, confront an older woman as a mother. Again, I think honor is part of this, but then also gentleness, I think, comes into play. Gentleness. Same principles apply with honor there. Honor your father and mother. That's what God calls families to to live like. But additionally, we, we think about gentleness. And what does that look like? I think it looks like this. Handle the situation with kindness. Seeking to avoid any unnecessary hurt. I mean, have you ever had to confront your mother about something? Right? You, you handle that situation with understanding that discerns how to approach your spiritual mother and how much your spiritual mother can handle. Be sensitive as you speak the truth in love. So handle it with kindness and discernment and with sensitivity. Illustration of this would be, I think, 1 Peter 3.7, it's not talking about a mother in this situation, but a wife. But I think the same principle applies here. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Basically, what Paul is, or Peter is saying in that text is, is handle them carefully. Handle them with understanding. Know their value, but their sensitivity in the way that God made them. And so I think that can apply in how we would address sin in the life of a mother in the body of Christ. A spiritual mother, a woman who is older than you are. Thirdly, confront a brother as a, confront a younger man as a brother. Younger men as brothers. And I think the key words here would be humility and brotherly love. When you confront your brother in Christ, do it with humility and brotherly love. Well, what does that look like then? I think what Paul, Paul is getting at here is treat them as an equal. 
Treat them as a brother. In relation to sin, you are an equal. Right? You are no more, uh, how shall we say, uh, immune to sin than your brother in Christ is. We need to come like that to each other. And you are his equal in relation to Christ. Are there any believing brothers and sisters that are more forgiven than another? No, we equally have the righteousness of Christ over our lives. We all really have this. If not for the restraining grace of God, how much could all of us just dive into all kinds of sins? Right? Equal in relation to sin. Equal in relation to Christ. Equal in relation to the Father. We are what? Sons and daughters. By God's adoption. And so we treat them as an equal. And then in love, be ready to shoulder their sin burden. Don't just tell them their sin and then walk away and leave them to handle on their own. You help them as a brother. Carry the weight side by side with them. Galatians 6, 1 through 5 says this so well. Brothers, if any is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Listen to the humility of this. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That's Paul saying, because you can get into the same sin. Watch yourself. You're not, you're not any more immune to it. And here's love. Bear one another's burdens. So fulfill the law of Christ. Humility. And brotherly love. That's how you approach a brother. Second Thessalonians 3, 13-15. We already referred to this. Don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And then finally, confront a younger woman as a sister. And I think the key word here he gives us, and I think it's very interesting, and we'll, we'll give some emphasis to this because Paul does, that Paul tells us, Specifically, what he's getting at here. Younger women as sisters with what? In all purity. Great emphasis here from Paul that in an attitude of purity, we come to our sisters, younger women in the body of Christ. And what Paul is talking about here directly is, is, is sexual chastity. Be pure in this. As a brother in Christ, when you need to confront a sister in Christ about her sin, a primary burden on your heart must be to protect her purity. As you provide something to her spiritually, protect her purity on every level. In other words, do nothing to manipulate, control, or overpower her for your own selfish, sinful, or God forbid, sexual advantage. Brothers, fathers, listen to this. When we need to confront a sister in Christ, we must be very, very careful to be indifferent to any kind of emotional or physical attraction in all purity. Protect her purity. Sometimes a sister in Christ will be drawn to a brother in Christ who, while comforting her, is will, or while confronting her, excuse me, is willing to listen to her and to lead her toward what is good. Maybe a sister in Christ is in a marriage situation where the husband is not leading, is not listening, and 
it's called upon a brother in the church to confront of sin. Well, be careful with that. Brothers, you protect her from her own vulnerability by being totally indifferent to any emotional or physical attraction. Can I give you some very practical advice about how or what we can do to protect our sisters and ourselves from impurity and still be the family of God that Paul is calling us to be? These, these aren't necessarily in Scripture, but I want to give you these things and, and you take them to heart, please. First of all, if you, have, if you find yourself in a situation where you need to confront a sister, I want to encourage you, brothers and fathers, don't be anywhere alone with her. Don't be anywhere alone with her. Other than your biological family, of course, because you, Lord willing, have sisters in Christ in your family. And second, let me take it to another level. Not only don't be alone with her, but don't confront a sister in Christ about her sin while alone. If you need to confront her sin, do it with her husband present, if she has a husband. That does so much more anyway. Because not only are you addressing her need, but you're shepherding her husband at the same time in how to address her need. You see? And your accountability is there. Well, if she doesn't have a husband, do it with your wife present. If you don't have a wife, do it with a spiritual mother present. God has provided for this. We can still be family, but Paul makes an emphasis of this and he's so clear Do it with all purity. Brothers, fathers, if you commit to these kinds of things and purity, we can still act like family and help each other grow, but protect one another from temptation. Yes, it may seem inconvenient at the outset, but you know what? It will become a habit. And Lord willing, God will keep us in purity. May it be so by the power of God's grace. These attitudes are employed, listen, to win the family members toward the Word of God, so that they will receive it and be changed for their good and for the glory of God in the church. Again, this is, this is not manipulating people for selfish gain. Taking on respect and, and gentleness and so on. That's not trying to manipulate people for selfish gain. This is ministering grace so that you can see your family built up in Christ-likeness. Ephesians 4.29. This is washing your family members' feet in love so that they will learn to love like Christ did. This is winning people's trust. And by the way, that word winning is a good word that comes in those texts of pursuing people when they're in sin. Win them. Win them. It's winning people's trust so that you have some influence to point them to the truth of God's Word for their good and God's glory. And I want to make one more question before we come to our final point. And it'll be a brief point as well. Listen carefully. There's a difference, dear ones between confronting apostates, wolves, or false teachers, and confronting sheep or fellow members of God's household? Please take this to heart. There is a big difference between confronting apostates, that's someone who is walking in in unbelief, right? And wolves, which is the biblical example uh, or a biblical illustration of a false teacher. And there's a difference between confronting them and confronting sheep or fellow members of God's household. When a sheep, believer, is observed in practical sin or doctrinal sin, you do not treat them or handle them 
like an apostate or a wolf unless they prove themselves by unrepentance over a course of time in confronting them, unless they prove themselves to be so by their life. And you won't know that during the initial steps of confrontation, which is really what Paul is addressing here. You won't know that until way down the road. A general rule of thumb for the initial steps of confrontation is this. Private, gentle, patient with sheep. Public, sharp, quick with wolves. That's a gentle, that's a, that's a, that's a simple rule of thumb for the initial steps. And you know what? It is, it is very destructive to get this mixed around in the family of God. And I want to make a, a very clear application of this as well. There is so much, there's, there, for, give me an example, for there, there is so many um, what we call watchdog ministries online, right? And they, are, they can be beneficial. Many of them are. And you can read and listen, and, and they tend to want to just point out the false teaching and the immorality and come down hard and clear on it. And that can be very helpful. But sometimes you have to understand that who, they're, who, they're, who are they addressing? They're addressing apostates. They're addressing wolves. And if you take that sort of approach and bring it into the local family and address other believers and sheep like that, it won't work. It will harm the church. And so we have to address one another like this with love and encouragement, giving each other teaching or exhortation or entreaty or comfort or encouragement. We have to be careful with this. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Oh, that's how it works. That's, that's, God's, that's God's pattern. We must confront sin in one another's lives. But when we do, let's do it as the members of the household of God. That's what Paul's calling us to. So number four, just quickly, responding with divine enablement. What can shape our hearts and change our minds to want this? Well, letter A, again, remember, we are God's household. We're God's family. He's our Father. We're forgiven, all of us who are in Christ. And we only do this with believers. You you don't do this with an unbeliever, okay? You can't moralize an unbeliever. They just need the gospel. We're, We're God's family. We're forgiven. We're righteous in Christ. We're adopted. We're loved. We're at peace with God and with one another. That doesn't mean we ignore sin. But that concept, that gospel mindset of being adopted in God's family changes the way we approach sin in one another's lives. It changes our perspectives, our attitudes, our our heart posture toward our sinning family members. We approach one another in family love and speak our Father's truth. And then B, we're the church of the living God. We're the living God's church. What does that mean? We're ruled by the risen Christ. This is what we take heart in when we don't have the courage or feel the strength to approach one another. We're ruled by Christ. We're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We're bearing the fruit of the Spirit. 
We have all the resources through the Holy Spirit that we need to rightly respond to sinning family members. Depend upon the Holy Spirit. You know, you may be going into a situation where you're like, I, I know I gotta say this. I gotta say this to this person. I just don't have it. Well, have you been praying? Have you studied God's word? Do you understand the situation well enough to give them God's word? Go in trust. Expect the Holy Spirit to supply your need for that situation. You may not feel it beforehand. But then when you come into that situation, God is able to give you what you need. Trust Him. Trust Him all the way through. And and ask Him to equip you for every good work. We confront sin in one another's lives. Let's do it as family members of God's household. So, So is there a sinning family member that you know of that God has pressed upon your heart that you need to, to confront? Is there one? How are you going to do it? How are you going to begin? You begin with prayer. You equip yourself with the Word. You follow Paul in his, in his, in his outline here. And you depend upon the Holy Spirit. Are you a member of the family of God? Maybe you're here today and you're not a believer yet. You haven't turned from sin to trust in Christ. Are you a member of God's family? I love the way John 3, chapter 3, tells us how to enter the kingdom of God, the family of God. What does Jesus say? You must be born again. You want to get into God's family, you must be born again. That's the work of the Spirit. Do you want that? Ask for it. And Jesus says in that chapter, believe. Trust in the perfect work of Christ. He is your righteousness to cover you. He is your atonement from His cross to absorb your guilt and your punishment. And He can give you that new life now through His His Spirit, His resurrection power, and, and give that to you for all of eternity. That's how you become a child of God. Born of God. John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of flesh, but born of God. Are you born of God? That's how you get into God's family. If that's your desire, ask him for it. Ask him for it. Well, let's stand together and we'll pray. Our Father, thank You for giving us such precious principles and help in Your Word. Thank You that the Gospel is what changes our hearts and motivates us to to address one another's sin in love and truth. Thank You. You've made us Your house, Your family, that we are Your temple, Your church. Work in us to will and to work of Your good pleasure even as we seek to help one another grow in godliness by confronting sin. Father, grow us this year. You have been growing us. You've been working in our lives. Please continue your good work for your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.